You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. Liz Fong Jones always wanted to be an engineer at Alphabet. After graduating from college, Liz did just that, not only working there, but really believing in the mission. Now, the former Alphabet engineer has become well-known as a critic of the company's controversial business decisions and for her work as an activist on workplace issues. Despite leaving the company earlier this year, Liz still has a lot of concerns about how the tech industry is treating vulnerable employees. I sat down with Liz and began by asking her about the challenges working as a trans person at Alphabet. So it was really interesting being a trans person at Alphabet in 2008. Uh, I was certainly far from the first. Um, There were a number of very senior engineers who were people I respected and looked up to who are trans, but there wasn't really a formal group of trans people at Alphabet or at Google. There was a LGBT generalist kind of employee resource group, but there are no specific resources for trans people at Google. Mm -hmm. And how did that change during your time at the company? So during my time at the company, trans people became more and more organized. Um, At first, it was kind of a discussion of how do we operate within the Gaglers, the LGBT ERG umbrella? Mm -hmm. How do we move that into having a space where trans people can feel safe to discuss issues, where even people who are well-meaning allies sometimes say things that are not particularly sensitive? How do we kind of have our own space? So my friend Emily Metcalf and I started a mailing list for trans people at Google. And that eventually evolved until we had hundreds of people that belonged to that mailing list, which was really, really cool to think that there were hundreds of trans people and allies really interested in working on trans issues at Google. When you were at Google, as part of what you did, your day job, you had a pretty good communication with management. You had an open line of communication. You were in a position where you could give critical feedback to the company and not feel like there are negative repercussions. Did that change and and when did that change? I have to say that it was never really my formal day job. It was something that I always was doing on the side. Mm. And that originally started, ironically, with LGBT issues. Um, In 2008, the Prop 8 campaign in California happened and Google AdWords was really instrumental towards the Prop 8 campaign banning gay marriage in California. 
and a number of LGBT employees were very upset about this at the time but they didn't really have an effective way of voicing their disagreement and kind of because it was so disorganized management basically was able to brush the issue under the table and in 2009 when I saw a similar issue with trans people and other vulnerable groups potentially being harmed by Google's products I felt I had to speak up mm -hmm. and that's when I spoke up first uh, on an issue affecting the company where Google Plus, the company's social product at the time, was going to require people to use the names found on their driver's licenses. And I knew from personal experience that as a trans person, the name on my driver's license didn't always match the name that I used. And therefore, I was frustrated that Google was potentially going to enforce this rule upon trans people, as well as people like psychologists, teachers, right? People who need privacy in order to make sure that they can lead their online lives separate from their professional lives. Now, when you pushed back, this was internally, right? Yes. Within Google. Yes. What kind of um, reception did you get to that kind of pushback? I think that at first the executives were confused by this feedback, that they hadn't previously seen this kind of a organized employee pushback because it was the first time that it happened at the company. But thousands of engineers and employees signed a letter saying that they thought that this policy needed to be revised because of the harm that it would cause. And eventually it got to a point where the employees of Google who were most active in organizing this group of employees were invited to a panel. They were invited to be a part of the product development of Google Plus in order to help guide the product, right? So I think that over time we managed to find a way of getting that feedback incorporated through official channels. So that's encouraging, and that, yeah. that should be a sign of progress. Yet, have you seen sufficient change in the corporate culture during your tenure there? I would say things have regressed rather than progressed. Explain. Um, in 2015, kind of was the last time that Google employees successfully pushed back against a policy from management and had management actually sit down and listen. Since then, what I've seen from Alphabet's management is that they're much less receptive to employee feedback, that they're not, not willing to listen to it, that they're brushing things under the table again, that they're even hiding things from employees rather than doing things out in the open for fear of criticism and feedback from their own employees. What's driving that? What changed? I think that two things contributed to that. First of all, the fact that Larry Page and Sergey Brin are no longer actively running the company is a significant factor in the culture and tenor at the top because the tenor at the top was that Sergey and Larry really thanked employees for their feedback and promised to listen. But with them stepping out of the picture, with uh, Sundar taking the lead of Google uh, as a business unit, Sundar's leadership style is much more of a consensus-based leadership style and it focuses a lot more on listening to his senior vice presidents, to his immediate direct reports. And those set of people are not necessarily as motivated to listen to employees because they haven't necessarily been around since the beginning of Alphabet. Mm -hmm. And they also have short-term financial incentives in that they're paid largely in Google stock and therefore that they want to do things that increase the immediate bottom line rather than looking after the long term. So a traditional company really rather than a company that promises to do no evil. Yes, exactly. I think that the 
company's culture of don't be evil has been propagated from employee to employee, but hasn't necessarily made its way into the newer executives that came on board. So do you think this is something that's unique to Alphabet, unique to big tech companies? Could this happen at a startup, a smaller company? I think that at smaller companies, it's easier to know kind of what are you signing up to do, what are you working on, and to give direct and clear feedback to executives. Although there are a few exceptions, for example, Clarify, a startup in San Francisco, California, secretly started working on a Pentagon project called Project Maven, mm -hmm. and their employees didn't know, and when they found out, they revolted. And of course, there are repercussions to that. Let's broaden our conversation out a little bit here, because you've talked about how there are illusions when it comes to the tech industry writ large, um, that it's a meritocracy and it's neutral. At what point was that illusion shattered, and, and how do you see it reverberate across the industry? When was that illusion shattered for me, or when was it shattered for a wider group of people? Both. I think for me, that illusion was shattered pretty early on when I heard stories like Kelly Ellis's story of being brought on with a college degree and two to three years experience and being put one level lower than someone from the exact same school with the exact same uh, number of years of experience, right? That kind of really shattered that myth and, and told me that, hey, wait a second, something's not right here, right? Like, there are people that are getting sexually harassed. Nothing is happening to the people who are sexually harassing. Mm -hmm. And people are systematically being denied appropriate levels, appropriate pay, appropriate promotions. However, I think that it took many years for everyone else in the industry who wasn't suffering from the effects of this pervasive discrimination to wake up and realize this was happening. So what's the solution here? I mean, aside from employees pushing back, aside from a groundswell of work being done at the bottom, how do we address this corporate culture? I think that the most important thing that companies, whether they be Alphabet or other companies, can do is to involve employees in the structural decision-making processes. We see this in the European Union where there are worker representatives appointed to boards, where workers have strong bargaining rights and they use that to make the business run more effectively because they're the people on the ground doing the work. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that tech could really use. I think that certainly one of the demands that the Google walkout made in November of 2018 and that I had made separately before that and continue to make is that when workers are represented on boards, it means that the boards don't have an incentive to do things that will seriously harm employees. For instance, I think about the Andy Rubin $90 million yes. severance payout, right? Mm -hmm. And I wonder what would have happened if there had been an employee sitting in that boardroom? Would, the, would the, that $90 million package have just sailed through? I don't think so. Right. Well, th that's a question that's not going to get answered anytime soon, especially when you look at the ownership structure of so many of these companies. And of course, it's not specific to Alphabet or Facebook. It's kind of an industry-wide issue here. I agree, but I think that shareholders are waking up to these dangers as well. In particular, CTW Investments has a shareholder proposal pending before Alphabet's June meeting in which they are demanding that the management of Alphabet appoint one worker representative as a member of the management approved board slate. Because even if they don't have the voting power to carry that through, it's a powerful signal to management that if your investors are not happy with what the company is doing, they can choose to sell the stock. 
So management will say, okay, that's that's certainly an idea. We'll take it under consideration. But they'll go back to their old playbook, which is we'll try to repair relations with employees through the more conventional means. We will uh, step up our diversity efforts, step our step up our inclusion efforts. You're you're kind of laughing right now. Yes, I'm I'm laughing because those diversity and inclusion efforts have not worked. Um, if you look at the amount of money that's been spent on quote unquote diversity and inclusion efforts versus the amount of progress that's been made, I would say that it's not been effective at all, right? If you look at the percentage of black engineers working at Google and you look at the amount that that's changed, it hasn't changed very much for all the money that's been spent working on this problem. People like to portray these issues as quote unquote pipeline problems outside of their control or within the broader industry, rather than looking at what are they directly doing that's harming employees. And I think that this is really frustrating that Alphabet's management has the data they need in order to justify making significant changes, and yet they choose not to because they'd rather do things at business as usual. So pressure from shareholders is the only way to get their attention. Pressure from shareholders and employees working together, and lawsuits, unfortunately, lawsuits and investigations. That's the only way that change is going to happen because these executives don't appear to be interested in doing the right thing on their own. Do you think the tech industry right now is in a vulnerable spot? I mean, there's a lot of public hate. I, I don't want to say hate. A lot of public criticism of the industry at large and a lot of questioning of, of what society has allowed them to do up until this point. I think that some of the criticism of the tech industry is warranted, but I think some of it is also partisan attacks and kind of playing the refs. And I worry that conflating those things together is particularly dangerous, right? Especially when we're talking about the rights of vulnerable employees. Mm -hmm. If someone's interested in investigating, uh, investigating Google or investigating Facebook, are they investigating it because they genuinely are looking out for the interests of minority employees? Or are they trying to coerce that entity into being more favorable towards the governing party? Right, score a political point, in other words. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there is a serious need for regulation, but I think that this is why employees need to be involved in explaining what are the problems, why don't the easy solutions work, and how can we actually fix this? But employees haven't been granted that structural power before. Do employees want that structural power? Some people just want to be left alone. I think that there are certainly people who want to put their heads down and quote unquote just do their jobs. Um, however, if we think about engineers as engineers, right, similar to structural engineers, mechanical engineers, right, I would argue that electrical engineers and computer scientists have ethical obligations and that we need to support people who are working in support of their ethical obligations as engineers. All right, so give me one reason why you should be hopeful, we should be hopeful that change is possible here. I think that what we've seen in the past year has been an increased willingness by Google employees and employees at other companies to speak out publicly. If you look at the Google walkout with 20,000 employees in November, if you look at Amazon workers, Amazon, a company that is very famously secretive, very yeah. famously anti-organizing, where you look at those employees organizing for action against climate change, right? I think that this is the start of a groundswell where employees recognize the power that they have and start to utilize it where their managers and their executives won't. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. 
But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Then we took a look at a new robot, one you don't have to worry about taking your job or taking over the world. Rewalk Robotics produces wearable robotic exoskeletons that power hip and knee motion to enable people with spinal cord injuries to stand upright and walk. It sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but could bring tangible medical benefits. The company gained attention back in 2014 for receiving the first ever FDA clearance for a robotic exoskeleton for paraplegics. More recently, shares of the company have skyrocketed, jumping almost 100% in the last month after the FDA approved its newest product. The ReStore is a soft, fabric-based exosuit that'll be used in rehabilitation clinics to help stroke survivors walk. We started our conversation with CEO Larry Jasinski by asking him just how many people this new exoskeleton could benefit. Well, they've gone from sci-fi to real life. Uh, for the paralyzed community, there's about 550 people that can walk today in one type of exoskeleton. And uh, the new news and the big news for our company is the FDA this past week and the CE the week before in Europe approved a new system for people that have a stroke. And this will start in the clinics to help them learn how to walk again. So this is more of sort of a rehabilitation device for the stroke victims. Very much so. There's about 17 million people between the United States and Europe that have a stroke. So this applies to a very broad group of people. And, and with the FDA approval, I mean, are they basically making a determination that this about the efficacy of it, that this works well enough that, that it should be out there? Well, the FDA approval is uh, based on safety, that it safety. works. Okay, uh, gotcha. uh, so that's what that data has. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, brought this out of Harvard University, and there's several published papers on this showing what it does for people who can walk. They can walk further they can walk faster, and they have better symmetry, so their feet touch the ground in equal passion. This isn't your first piece of equipment, of course. Restore you had before, Rewalk, and which is, of course, where the name comes from. The trouble has been getting insurers to finance this, right? Why are insurers loath to do it? Why are they slow to do it? Well, a slow to it is probably the right word, but uh, I've got the example. The German government has issued this. If you're a German citizen, 90% of the people are covered. So it's wonderful for us over there. That's leading our sales. The United States, the VA led the way. Uh, for the U.S. insurer, uh, the first group that has stepped forward, Cigna changed their policy to remove experimental investigational this past February. So it's about a three-year process. I see. Uh, so on the rewalk side, well, we have plenty of people that would like to walk again. That's just not where the insurers are. For the new product and trying to look at a portfolio of a company because I need success, I need performance financially uh, to drive us, uh, this product has coverage. The reimbursement to clinics for taking care of these patients pays for it in 45-minute increments for every patient, and this can treat enough patients a day where it's economical and affordable for these clinics to be a uh, viable economic play for them when we start selling it next week. Would you expect over time, like other hardware products, for the cost of your technology and similar technologies to drop? Or will it be more like other medical products in which the laws of supply and demand sometimes feel like they don't apply and go up or stay the same over time? 
Well, uh, bringing a product to market is an expensive and long yeah. process with regulatory, that tends to slow it down. Uh, I think what you will see is the types of systems will be different. So the mm. Rewalk is about a $100,000 device. The Restore sells for 28900 and it's leased to centers for about $1,100 a month. So the math is already a lot better, and this is a wearable robotic. When you look at it, it's a small, flexible uh, component that fits in the lower leg. It's about one-eighth the size and weight of the original. So well, maybe we can out. take a look at that, because you brought someone with you, right? Certainly. Who apparently uh, uh, has the device on now, and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit of what we're looking at here. Sure. Well, as you look at the uh, young man that's walking with this, uh, mm -hmm. what he's got, you can't see this, but inside his shoe is a device like this. Mm -hmm. And this is, just goes inside your normal shoe, Okay. and there's a cable to the front that lifts your toes so you clear the ground, lifts right. your heel to propel the next step. Mm -hmm. So functionally, this uses cables, like on a bicycle when you pull the brakes, or a marinette, it lifts your toe and it lifts your heel. And it's doing this through sensors and software that is taking a, a, a sensor on the healthy leg Mm. And on the paralyzed leg, it's telling it exactly what to do. So you get symmetry, mm. speed match, uh, and distance match for those patients. So what you see the, uh, or saw in the picture a moment ago was a very lightweight, less than two pounds component on the lower leg, mm -hmm. and a battery pack and two motors that were on the waist. Right. Of course, our, invest our viewers are investors in many ways. You said in your statement, the pathway is now there to become a break-even, uneven, profitable company. Do you have a timeline for that? We haven't given out a public forecast on that, but you can look at where we are and where our expenses are, and it's, it's in the next two to three years. Uh, I, I think for us as a company, the stroke product will penetrate because it's a much larger market and I can already pay for it, and, it, and it, there's nothing else like it. Um, longer term, this soft robotic technology, it can work for multiple sclerosis perhaps, for stroke uh, victims that need something at the hip, and for Parkinson's disease. So that's part of the long vision of the company. Mm. And the rate at which I invest will probably affect the time at which I get to break even a profitability. Then I sat down with Alexis Ohanian. Alexis made his name in the tech world by co-founding Reddit with the goal of constructing the front page of the internet. These days, he may be better known as the husband of tennis star Serena Williams. But now the co-founder of the VC firm Initialized Capital has a new mission, advocating for paid paternity leave. Alexis was very public about taking 16 weeks of paternity leave after the birth of his daughter, Olympia. Now he's partnering with Dove's MenCare to get people to sign the pledge for paternity leave and pushing for Congress to enshrine it into law as a guaranteed right. I began by asking Alexis about the contradiction between the availability of paternity leave and the actual utilization of it. Yeah, uh, the sad reality is less than one in five American men even have access to paternity leave, and then the numbers of them who take it are even lower. Um, this is a challenge, right? We as a society have, have not put enough of the expectation on men or given them the opportunity to step up. And you know, I was fortunate enough as a founder of a company to have a pretty progressive paid family leave policy, 16 weeks, man or woman, adopted or whatever. If you've got a new baby, you're getting time off. And, and I took full advantage of it. And I did so and took my full time and, and talked about it on TV because I wanted other career, sort of hard-charging business dads, tech execs, CEOs, all the way down to the rank and file, men, all seeing that this was not mutually exclusive with being career driven and and to start to to change the perception around it because i mean no one is going to accuse me of not working hard 
and, and show that that's not incompatible with also caring about family, especially during this time when it is just such an upheaval uh, for any family. So did you see your colleagues, did you see people at your company mm -hmm. follow suit and do the same thing? And were they um, saying, thank you so much for, for making this uh, something visible that we can follow? You know, I got feedback from folks, I mean, like a, a range of people, whether it was employees or just random people on the internet, saying how much they appreciated the air cover. Mm -hmm. uh, I also saw CEOs of portfolio companies that we've invested in who reached out for advice and suggestions and, and who have now come back to me with stories of success. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we don't force our companies, but we do try to counsel them, we do try to guide them. And what these CEOs are learning is that by investing in their employees, by, by letting them know that they have this time, man or woman, but especially if they're a dad, and encouraging them to take the time, they're seeing huge returns. Because when these employees are back to work, they're way more engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the subtle advantages is that time doesn't have to be used all at once. And so the flexibility allows each family to take the time when they need to so it meets their needs. So if you need to take off you know, the first two months, great, and then you want to just take off every Friday so you have a three-day weekend to help your partner who's easing back into work, great. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see this now really, really catch hold. And I think it's because we're all so desperate for talent, both to recruit it and retain it. And we're now seeing this kind of arms race around paid leave. Sweetgreen just recently announced six months for their employees. Yeah, but no one uh, actually takes six months paid leave. I mean, it's one thing well, to offer it out there. Yeah. A lot of companies do that. Some companies on, in Silicon Valley offer unlimited time off, mm -hmm. vacation days, and we know most people don't do that. Yes, I think the, and you're right, when it comes to vacation time, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a little trickier because there's less of an impetus to go do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're having the baby, you know the due date and, and as you and I both know, when that baby shows up, you have no choice. Like the, the world has changed, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a big part of it is encouraging, especially men, to take their paternity leave. And that's why I was so, so outspoken about it before I took it, <laughs> been so outspoken since. That's why I partnered with Dove Men Plus Care on both the pledge and this campaign to really actually, we want to bring 100,000 signatures on this pledge to Washington in October to actually get a federal law passed so that we're not just relying on the private sector to step up, mm -hmm. we're actually saying, look, these are the values we believe in as Americans. We're the last country on the planet in the developed world to have a form of federal paid leave, and every American worker deserves it. And, and it shouldn't just be for those of us who are lucky enough to, to work at companies or in industries that offer it to us. It's actually better for all of us as a society uh, to have dads and moms be offered this time and then also take advantage of it. So what kind of reception have you gotten from folks on Capitol Hill, from the public sector? You know, it is a really easy thing to campaign for yes. because it is bipartisan. People can agree with it, the idea of it. Right. The, the, uh, there's still, the devil's still in the details about actually getting a law passed, especially in, in this time in Washington. But to have something that in both the House and the Senate and that both Democrats and Republicans have championed is exciting. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we all believe that you know, the values of America are rooted in family at the, the foundation. And, and it's long overdue that the laws really catch up to what we've been talking about. And so I think that's why we've seen such a great response, not just from, from plenty of dads. We've got a, we just launched this Facebook group of advocates uh, for parental leave, or specifically paternity leave. Um, but we're seeing this groundswell because you know, there is now a way through social media to let all of us dads <laughs> um, flex 
about the time that we spend with our families. And it's not, the bar is low, let's be real, right? I, I, I hate when I see headlines of me with my daughter saying that I'm babysitting, mm-hmm. right? No, I'm, just, I'm dadding, You're right? there. I'm just there. And, but but I, I am heartened by the fact that we're now actually starting to get more of a conversation among dads, whether it's on Facebook groups, subreddits, um, even the guys in my gym. Like, we talk about protein and we talk about dad things. Like, it is, it is a more commonplace thing in part because we have these phones on us. There's an entire community of people who talk about dad reflexes, which are just video clips. Uh-huh. You'll have to put some of these in here of dads catching their kid before they fall off the sofa. And they're, they're amazing. They're, they're, they're funny, but they're also endearing, right? And they're normalizing dads talking about dad life. Wracking. No, well, it's, it's funny because it, at first you're worried something's going to happen to the kid, but you just know it's going to have a good outcome because it's on dad reflexes. But, but think about it. Historically, you would never put dad reflexes on Bloomberg TV. You never put a clip of a dad catching a baby. You'd never make a movie out of it. You never write a magazine about it. Um, you wouldn't even, if you were hanging out at the bar or the gym, you wouldn't be like, oh yeah, and yesterday my baby almost fell over and I caught her. Right? right. That's not a good story. It's just not. If you think that's a good story, but you're you marry it to person. social media and. You shoot a qu- quick photo or a video and you have something now can reach a much bigger audience, millions and millions of people. And again, it, it normalizes these paternal instincts that so many dads feel, but I, I, I don't think historically had an easy way to get it out there and just kind of normalize it. I hear what you're saying about using social media to normalize your involvement to encourage other fathers mm-hmm. to do the same. Thing is, it's usually filtered, edited, looks great, and yeah. tells a really positive story. Yeah. What about <laughs> posting something that shows the messier side of parenthood, mm-hmm. the messier side of fatherhood? Because not everything comes out great all the time. Oh, for sure. And I think I, I must say I'm obviously biased as the founder. I think communities on Reddit, like r slash dadit, do a really good job cutting through the veneer mm-hmm. because people are just posting. They're not posting to get more followers. They're posting because it's a story that they want to share. Mm-hmm. And so you see many more of these stories of parents, of dads, commiserating with one another after just a terrible, one of those just awful days when you just, you're just, when you finally get her to bed and you finally can lie down, you just feel like relieved. Everything just kind of melts off you, right? And there are now channels for that side that I actually think people are even hungrier for because we do live in a world where we're all filtering every image, trying to show this sort of idealized version of ourselves. I've talked about us living in this post-social world now because I think we are, we've reached this, this peak social moment where now we really want to retreat back to communities where we have genuine conversation um, because that's what humans like. We don't actually want to live these sort of manicured, perfect lives for mm-hmm. our followers. That's not natural. It's not authentic. Humans are community creatures, and, and I think these types of platforms are going to grow and, and thrive um, because we want that connection. How does, how does Serena fit into all of this with, with, <laughs> with your posts, with uh, your push for you know, paternal leave? She... Certainly in the, the watching what she went through during the childbirth and then after, I mean, life-threatening consequences, where I knew in those weeks after there was another level of responsibility for me as a partner to her and also father our daughter. Um, going through that, even with all of the, the, the resources we have financially, with family and paid leave, like I, we had everything going for us and it was still such a traumatic time mm-hmm that it crystallized how valuable this is to make sure every American gets, because I could not imagine going through it. One in four American women are back to work in two 
weeks after giving birth. I could not imagine I could not imagine my wife having to go back to work. I could not have gone back to work with a clear head and done any kind of good work knowing that my home front, that my castle was, was, was under siege, right? That just doesn't, we are humans at the end of the day. And so what I'm hopeful about is, she is obviously a role model to so many people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've also learned so much by just her casual 2 a.m. tweets or she'll just talk about, she'll just, it's whatever's on her mind, and, it, and whether it's something related, usually related to Olympia, that, that really resonates with people. And, and I see this impact where she is very open. I mean, that is her tweeting, right? There's no like team of 100 curating every tweet. That's just her at two in the morning being like, oh, I miss Olympia and here's why. And it resonates with people because she is someone for whom, I mean, most people cannot imagine relating in any way, shape, or form, and yet there's a commonality there. And so in a lot of ways, yeah, I've, I've been inspired by the fact that she's been so transparent about both the highs and the lows of motherhood, um, whether it's postpartum depression, or, or even just, again, the, the sort of mundane things the daily about struggle. just missing Olympia, yeah. like being so excited that she's finally asleep, but then like 30 minutes later, really missing her and looking forward to her waking up. And and that's a relatable thing that that, that all parents can connect with. And so, you know, if we can get more dads tweeting at 2 a.m. about their, uh, their baby struggles, then I think, that's a, I think that's a win. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.